As you're turning in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, we'll be looking together at the first 11 verses in chapter 5 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there are none on the back table back there, which is unfortunate for you, but there are, which is fortunate for you, Bibles under the, uh, the offering box in the back back there. Uh, Feel free to stand up right now as the shuffle's happening. Pick one up. It's good for you to see the words that I'm about to read in front of you. It's good for you to keep them on your lap throughout our time together uh, as we study, as we consider what God has spoken to us through His Holy Spirit as recorded by the Apostle Paul to this small church in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago. So pick one of those up, have your Bible in front of you, keep it open on your lap. The sermon will be far more enjoyable if you keep it open throughout our time together. And it is important for us to acknowledge the authority through which this comes to us on when, we, uh, when we participate together in congregational worship. The authority that uh, these words bring to us are the same authority that Jesus Christ himself brought uh, when he came to earth. And these words are as if... The authority of Jesus is among us this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, and I will read through verse 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need of, to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Well, people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Plans are a regular part of life. No doubt you've made plans, maybe even for today. You've made plans for lunch uh, after we are finished with congregational worship. You've decided where to eat as a family and you will go there. Uh, You maybe have made plans to meet with a few others at work this week to iron out the details of an upcoming project you have. Or you and your spouse may be planning for a home improvement project next summer. So you're thinking about saving money. You're thinking about carving out a week or two of vacation time to get that home improvement project finished. Plans are a regular part of life. Now, some of us, I know, plan well in advance, and some of us plan in the moment, and maybe you think to yourself, well, I'm not really a planner, I just fly by the seat of my pants, but you may be making things up as you go along, but that doesn't mean you're not a planner, it just means you're not an advanced planner. It means that you plan in the moment, and it doesn't mean your plans don't solidify until the moment before they're executed. That usually flies when you work alone, but you need to be clear about plans when there are others involved, when people around you are involved in those plans, speaking those plans clearly, communicating them early and often is much to be preferred. A family member or a friend may ask you, if you know what the plan for lunch is, what's the plan for lunch? And you may know the plan, and then you fill them in on the plan. But if you don't know the plan, then you would say something like, I don't know, I'm in the dark. I'm in the dark on the plan. I'm not quite sure. When we're in the dark, we're not aware of a plan. But when we do know a plan, the way forward is clear, and we operate then in the light. We operate in the light when we understand what the plan is. 
the biblical metaphors that we see even in this passage, which kind of stand at the center of what Paul is saying here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, is darkness and light. There is a contrast here that Paul begins to draw with the Thessalonians between darkness and light. And we see these metaphors all over Scripture. It's probably one of the most, if not the most, common metaphor in Scripture. Darkness and light. Sometimes, however, these metaphors are misunderstood in the way that the Bible uses them. Because they use, the Bible uses them, the biblical authors use these things almost universally the same way. It's largely been ingrained in us. We know this to be true just because of the world we live in and the things that are around us. That darkness is bad when spoken of like it is spoken here in 1 Thessalonians 5. That darkness is bad and that light is good. But the question is, why is that the case? Because the night or darkness isn't inherently bad. When God created the world, he created the daytime and he created the night and he said, it's all good. He said, it's all, all good. I sleep at night. I like to sleep. I think that sleep is a good thing. I'm all screwed up because of this time change again. Um, maybe it'll go away soon, but this is what we have. And so I feel weird right in front of you right now. This should have happened like an hour ago. Um, if you're feeling odd too, that, that's because of a, a time change. But, but I like to sleep. Darkness is helpful to sleeping, I found. Is that evil? No. In times past... When people wanted to navigate from point A to point B, especially if they were on the open seas, they would use the stars to navigate. Nighttime in that context is a good thing because it got them where they wanted to go. So when we get to a passage like this one this morning, we do naturally assume, and rightfully so, that darkness is bad and that light is good. Now, there are some context clues here that help us understand that, the, that, that that in fact is true here. But our natural inclination is to know this is true even when we're talking to others in our day-to-day life. If you go back to verse 13 in chapter 4, turn a page or just go back up the page a little bit, you'll see that Paul begins this section that we looked at last week by writing, But we do not want you to be uninformed brothers. But we do not want you to be uninformed. Why would this section come at the tail end of Paul informing the Thessalonians, again about what we saw last week, about the hope of Jesus' second coming, the hope of the resurrection of the dead, and the hope of being caught up to meet the bridegroom in the air? And why would that hope, in the midst of grief for those who had lost a loved one in Christ, why would that be here? come right before, in chapter 4, right before what Paul writes here about darkness and light in chapter 5. We've asked a lot of questions already. There's a lot of questions there, and hopefully we'll be able to answer some of these as we go through our time together. But the answer to all of these questions is how not only do we understand light and darkness in this passage, but how we understand light and darkness throughout all of Scripture. Christians live in the light. Now, that should be a pretty standard statement, something that you've heard many times if you've been in church. Christians live in the light. The helpful statement, though, that is going to give us a pretty good understanding of what it looks like to live in the light, uh, and the way that Scripture uses this phraseology, is to say that Christians live in light of God's revealed plan. Christians live in light, or in the light, we could say, of God's revealed plan. From Genesis to Revelation, God has laid out his plan for his people. How is it that God will take people who are under the curse of sin that comes into play in Genesis chapter 3, and bring them into an eternity fully satisfied in his presence. How will God do that? How will he accomplish that? 
Christians live in light of the plan that God has revealed in His Word. And that is how Christians live in the light. Being informed of God's plan and how we fit into that plan puts us squarely into the light that God talks about and reveals to us throughout the pages of Scripture. But just like if you don't know what the plan is for lunch and you say, I don't know what the plan is, I'm in the dark, being uninformed about what God has planned for us leaves us fixed and walking in darkness. This is one of the reasons, practically, we want to read together through the Bible as a church. Why we give a Bible reading plan at the beginning of September and ask as many people as would be willing to read through it. You should seriously consider picking up a Bible reading plan and reading through all of Scripture throughout the calendar year. It's a lot. It's a lot to chew. But what it does for us is that it gives us a larger picture, a better picture of what God has done and what He has revealed to us about His plan throughout all the pages of Scripture. What He was doing in the beginning, in eternity past, what He did, has done so far in human history, what He's doing right now in the present, and what He will do in the future. God's, God's Word reveals all of that to us. And in order to live in the light that Paul is talking about here in 1 Thessalonians 5 and the light that the Bible talks about throughout is to understand and know that plan better. Consider what Paul writes to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He says this, He has delivered us, this is Jesus, from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. God himself has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption of sins. This is a, a, these are meant to be in contrast to one another. The domain of darkness, a realm in which we exist in the world where God's plan is not known and not lived by. Where, where people ignore God and His Word, do not know what He's doing in hi human history, and decide to go the opposite direction. As opposed to living in the kingdom of His beloved Son, the light of the world. Jesus says that He is, in fact, the light of the world. He is the one who has shed light on human history and what God has done and will do in human history and God's plan of redemption, God's plan to redeem a people for his purposes. Paul saying in Colossians that we were once in the kingdom of darkness, but we are transferred out of that kingdom into Christ's kingdom. And in Christ's kingdom, we realize that it is only Jesus and only through Jesus, he's the only way to have redemption, the only way to have forgiveness of sins. All who do not know Christ are in darkness because they don't understand God and what he is doing. But all who are in Christ live in the light. They live in light of what God is doing and by faith approach him and look forward to what he has promised to do in the future. And because of the times we live in, many popular interpretations of biblical understanding of light and darkness have popped up, but many of them miss the mark. And I'm going to highlight two for you because I want you to be aware of these, because, of, because you hear these all of the time, I think. I, I do. And I think that you probably do as well. Because when we get to a passage that begins to talk about uh, light and darkness, Sometimes, because of the world we live in, it leads to a bunch of self-conscious navel-gazing. Like, we, we're looking at ourselves and only doing assessment about ourselves instead of seeing the bigger picture of what God's doing in creation and around us. So, what people often do with darkness and light is that they take walking in light to mean personal transparency. They take it to mean, I don't hide, I don't... I don't throw up a wall. I don't throw up a veneer. Everyone sees me just for who I am. And the idea that this, uh, that this, that the place that this usually comes from in Scripture is when people misinterpret 1 John 1.7, where the Apostle John says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of, his, of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from sin. So people say, see, look, I'm walking in transparency with other people. 
I'm open about my sin. I'm open about my mess before them. And then God looks at that and says, here's a good relationship with another person. Here's, uh, here's how you are, uh, you are then saved, is by, by being open about with one another and confessing our sins openly. Now, it is a good thing to be transparent with one another, but that's not what this passage is about. That's not what 1 John 1.7 is about. What 1 John 1.7 is about is walking in an understanding of what God has done in human history. Walking in the understanding that the only way to be saved is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Submitting ourselves fully to Him and His plans, not our own plans, not what we want to do today, tomorrow, and the next day, but what God has done and is doing and in fact will do. When we come to Christ and we say, you are the only way, you are the only truth, you are the only life. When we come to Christ in that way, then the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. We have to apply the understanding that light is being informed about God's plan and how he, we fit into that plan. It's not just being transparent about our shortcomings. Anybody can do that. Anybody can say, I shouldn't have snapped, or I shouldn't have I shouldn't have been frustrated or I shouldn't have gossiped. Anybody can say that, an unbeliever and a believer alike. But it's coming to Christ as the only way to be saved that marks us and redeems us. This kind of living, it's not our confession of sin to one another that gives us fellowship with one another. It's being redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus, by being united with Christ that gives us fellowship with one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, this passage gets applied to marriage almost exclusively, but it is not intended first for marriage. It says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? There it is. When Now, Again, usually you hear that at a wedding or, or in a marriage book or something like that. But what Paul is saying is that you don't have fellowship with one another if you are not in Christ. If you're apart from Christ, if you're separated from Christ, then you are in the dark. And true community, true fellowship, true camaraderie is not, you're not able to obtain that. You're not actually able to have that. And someone who is in Christ and someone who is not in Christ, someone who is a believer, a genuine Christian, and someone who is not a believer or a genuine Christian cannot have fellowship in the way that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 or John talks about in 1 John chapter 1 or Paul talks about here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Those ideas... Uh, do not mesh with one another. Until we come to Christ by faith, we are in the dark on what God is doing. Jesus is the light that shows us what God has been up to in human history. And apart from Christ, you're in darkness to the whole deal. So people take living in the light to be personal transparency, but that misses the mark because it falls well short of what God is doing. When he calls us into the light. People also take living in the light to mean that you should do nice things. Like, be a light. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and give light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, what some people do with this passage is they take it and say, see, be nice, be kind to other people. And of course you should be nice and you should be kind to other people. The fruit of the Spirit is that it would produce, produce good works in you towards other people. But what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 5 isn't that you should just do some nice things to help others out. Rather, he's telling his disciples that they know, they see right before them. He's preaching this to them in the Sermon on the Mount, speaking directly to his disciples, and they see directly before him them the light of the world and the fulfillment of all God's plans. 
All of God's promises, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, find their, or 2 Corinthians tells us that, find their yes in Jesus. And he was standing right in front of his disciples in that moment, and they saw the fulfillment in the flesh to what God was doing in human history around them. He was saying, you know it now, you're in the light, you, I've clued you in to what God is doing because I am here, I am right here in front of you. I've showed you what, what is happening in human history, and I'm the fulfillment of it. And he said, so now what you should do with that information is not hide it. You should make it known. You shouldn't just do nice things to people, but you should confront them with the truth. Confront them with the truth that if they're living in darkness, if they're living apart from Christ, that they do not have a way forward. That eternal life does not belong to them. It only belongs to those who are joined to Christ by faith. Jesus tells his disciples that it's they who know God's plan of redemption. And they are charged to make that plan known to those who are in darkness. And when you see them take hold of that mission in the book of Acts to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's the goal. It is only to see, and it is only in the light of Jesus that others will see our good works. You can be kind, but unless they have the light of God's, uh, the, the full understanding of God's plan of redemption in human history, they will just see it as a nice gesture and not as something that God has produced in them. Until others see Jesus as the fulfillment of God's plan to save people, they will not see our works as good. Things like in our society, my body, my choice, or love is love that have become mantras for the world around us may seem like good works according to a world that is in darkness. But when the light of Christ and what God is doing in human history exposes those things, we see them as wicked and evil. And so living in the light means that we must wield the light to expose evil and not simply be nice to people. So personal transparency, just being nice, uh, turn this idea of light and darkness into something that the scriptures do not intend. But what Paul is about to do, when we, we're going to actually look at our passage at some point here. But when, when Paul, what Paul is about to do in this passage and what Jesus continually mentions throughout the Gospels over and over again is that, is that when the light is spoken of, we should not look inward, but we should look to Christ. When light is spoken of, we should always turn our attention to the purpose or to the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to earth to fulfill God's plan of redemption. When God created the world, when he created man and woman, when he put them in the garden and charged them not to eat of the fruit of the, that one tree in the middle, and they immediately disobeyed. When they disobeyed and the curse of sin came into the world, God made a plan right there in Genesis chapter 3. He, his plan extended for all of eternity past, and he put, it into, he put it into motion in that moment that one would come that would deliver his people and redeem them from the sin that they had found themselves in. God from eternity past knew this was the plan and when Adam and Eve sinned and when the curse of sin came into the world, he put the plan into motion. Redemption for his people. And the way that the redemption came, as he alludes to over and over and over in the Old Testament, came in the person of Jesus Christ came in his perfect life, lived a life that we couldn't, came in the death that he died in our place, came in his burial, came in his resurrection, his ascension, and now his rule and his reign. God's plan of redemption has been fulfilled. And it is being fulfilled as we look forward to the day when Christ returns. One perfect man, the Son of God, the light of the world, 
brutally tortured, murdered on a cross. He was put in the ground and walked out three days later. And we look forward to, like Paul writes at the end of chapter 4, we look forward to the day when we will either be caught up to meet him if we are still alive, or be raised, resurrected as he was, to meet him in the air. All who look to Christ, all who come to Christ, all who trust in Christ, receive the forgiveness of sins and are redeemed. But there is only one light. There is only one way. There is only one truth. There is only one life. There is only one way to be eternally satisfied. And if you're looking to anything other than the person of Jesus for that, you are in fact in darkness. Come to the light. Come to the one who fulfills all of God's plans. So, okay, let's look at chapter 5 in 1 Thessalonians. I want you to note two things. They're simple. We've already talked about them a bit, but we're going to unpack what he says here in chapter 5. Two ideas to guide our times together this morning. Those who are in darkness and those who are in light. How does Paul talk about these two things here within the context of 1 Thessalonians? So first, those who are in darkness. Those who are in darkness. In verse 1, Paul continues to talk about what he talked about at the end of chapter 4, the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Last week, again, talking about the second coming, the clarity that Paul gives to the Thessalonians on Jesus' second coming was designed to give the Thessalonians hope in the midst of their grief. Jesus is coming back. You will, the ones who have died in Christ, those that you love in the church, family members, friends, those ones who have died in Christ will be raised. You will also, if you are still alive, go up into the sky to meet the bridegroom and escort him back to the wedding feast of the Lamb. So what happens here then is that uh, they have now a hope. A hope of being reunited with the people that have gone before them, have preceded them in death. This is true for us as well. Those who have preceded us in death, those who are in Christ and who have preceded us in death, they will be raised on the last day and we will meet them as well. Whether we die as too before Christ returns or whether he comes back in our lifetime. The Thessalonians will, in eternity, and this is true of us, will feast together with Christ finding full and final satisfaction in him. Corporately, we will gather together as the bride of Christ and worship him for eternity. We'll do that together. We won't do that separate. You won't do that separate from the people in this room. You will do it together with them. These are the people that you will be with in eternity. And Paul, now in chapter 5, continues in this vein. Paul knows that the timing of Christ's return is not, in fact, known, and he brings that up here again. He says that it will come like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You see that in the second half of verse 2. It will come like a thief in the night. It will catch them off guard. It's like a jump scare. It's like you hear a rustle in the living room in the middle of the night, and you're like, what's that? What's the cat up to? And then there's a burglar right there. This is the type of, and you, you jump out of your socks. This is the type of idea that Paul is communicating. Jesus will come back, and he will come quickly. And those who are in darkness then, those who do not understand God's plan of redemption, those who are thinking to themselves, he's not coming back. He died a long time ago and he's still there. We could probably find his bones if we look hard enough. Those people will not be aware. They will be caught off guard when Christ returns. Those who do not know Christ, those who deny Christ in their speech and by the way that they live, those ones are always, Paul says, looking for peace and security. Look at verse 3. Well, people are saying, 
The, the thief in the night concept, the jump scare, Christ returning is going to, will come while they're like in the middle of saying, there is peace and security. There is peace and security. The world looks for peace all over the place. Look for peace all over the place. And sometimes we get the peace concept wrong because the world thinks that a Netflix binge at the end of a long day or a glass of wine or a weekend at the beach is peace. The world defines those who are in darkness define peace as the absence of conflict. That's not wrong, it's just really simplistic. It's, it's really myopic. It's really nearsighted to think that way about the peace that God talks about. Because the peace that we're looking for comes through the person of Jesus. The peace that you need, that we all need, comes through the person of Jesus Christ. Because apart from Jesus, we are in continually, continual and constant conflict with God. We are not at peace with God. If you're not in Christ, if you are not a Christian, you are in conflict with God. He is at war with you. This is a stark reminder that it is only by the grace of God and only through the person of Jesus that we ever dare approach God. If you're not in Christ, you are at war with God. Paul alludes to this at the end of our passage in verse 9. He says, for God, this is those who are in light, God has not destined us as children of the day, as children of the light. He has not destined us for wrath. That implies that the children who are in darkness have in fact, or the children of darkness, are in fact destined for wrath. God is at war with them. And so they're looking for peace despite being in a continual war with the creator of the universe. How do you expect to find peace and entertainment? How do you expect to find peace in food and drink? How do you expect to find peace in relationships with people on earth if God is at war with you? The answer is you can't. You can't find peace apart from from Jesus Christ. God's wrath is against those who are outside of Christ in darkness. And the world also says there is security. They're thinking to themselves in the moment that Christ returns that they've finally found the key to security. They've installed the best security system in their home. They've decided that they can uh, that they've reached the threshold where nothing can touch them financially. They've decided that they've planned out their future perfectly and they'll live a healthy life to an old age when they will pass. But Paul says the coming of the Lord is again like a thief. It's not just that a thief in the night is unexpected, but Paul is saying that a thief in the night exposes your false security. How did they get around that security system? In these ways, Unbelievers are in darkness. They do not understand God's plan of redemption, and so they know nothing of true and lasting peace and security. There will be caught off guard when Jesus returns. Destruction will come for them no matter how much earthly peace and security they've stored up for themselves. No amount of earthly peace and security will serve as an escape. They will be surprised because they've ignored and rejected Jesus and thought to themselves, that's myth. Or, eh, I don't really have to worry about it. I've done enough good things. God will just throw those on the scale and it'll outweigh the bad things that I did and everything will be fine. But this is not the case. This is not what happens. Apart from Christ, there is no light. There is no understanding of what God is up to in history. And when you get the first parts of history wrong, you're guaranteed to get the last parts wrong as well. Paul likens those who are in darkness to those who are getting drunk at night. 
Those who are in darkness give themselves to natural sinful inclinations. They chase after things that will prevent them from thinking about the world around them, will prevent them from thinking well about the things that they see in the world around them. They will reject God's word in form of their best life and hedonistic momentary pleasures. That is the mark of those who are in darkness. But in doing so, they live with a lack of awareness of what's coming in the future. They live for the moment, and the future will come like a thief in the night. They mortgage their future like Esau did, who gave his birthright for a bowl of soup, and they exchange the image of the immortal God for an ox who eats grass. Those who do not understand or know Jesus as the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption will be surprised when he shows up. And they'll think to themselves, what on earth is going on? There will be no escaping the destruction that he brings for them. That is those who are in darkness in this passage. But then Paul gives us the hopeful side, the side that he writes directly to the Thessalonians, and the side that is if you are in Christ is true for you, those who are in light. This is the contrast. The children of light, the children of day. Paul says this again in last week's passage in verses 13 through 18. He informed the Thessalonians about Jesus' second coming. And so he says here again in chapter 5, verse 2, For you yourselves are fully aware. You know it. You know what's coming. This is how you are a child of the day. This is how you are a child of light. You know what's coming. The Thessalonians did not receive, remember all the way back at the beginning of the letter, they did not receive the word of God as the word of man. They received the word of God as the word of God. And so they believed it. They said, if God said it, they believed what he said. And so they themselves were ready for the return of Christ as those who were aware of what God is up to in history. Those who are in light, therefore then, according to Paul, put on three things. Look at verse 8. Put on the breastplate of faith and love. We're going to count that as two. Breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Faith and love and the hope of salvation. They believe what God has said. They look forward to the fulfillment of what God has promised. And they love one another as they encourage one another in these things. That's the correspondence there. Faith, love, hope. Believe what God has said. Faith. They look forward to the fulfillment of what God has promised. It's the hope. And then they show. They're transformed. According to these things, and they love their brothers and sisters in Christ by encouraging them with these truths. Readiness, therefore, for the return of Christ is what it means to walk as children of light. And so, when we look here at the things that are outlined in Scripture, the things that are outlined here by Paul, these three things, the faith, the belief that God will do what he says he's going to do, the hope, the, the, the belief that God will do what he has promised to do in the future, and the love in the which we display for brothers and sisters in Christ, these things amount to the readiness for the return of Christ and what it is meant to walk as children of light. Christians walk in the light, knowing God's plan of re- to redeem his people. But friends, this may be true of you. And friends, we want to encourage one another in this way. That many Christians live with very little understanding of what God has said to us in his word. They have read little of the Bible. They give little attention to an understanding to what it says. They listen to hundreds of hours of podcasts and read Christian books by the most, the coolest voices in Christianity. But God's word collects dust on a shelf. 
But children of light are those who God has revealed, plan, and live in light of. God's children, those who walk in light, are those who God know God's plan and live in light of it. There is no Christian who is not called to understand what God is doing in human history. There is no Christian who says, I can get away with not knowing. There is no Christian who is not called to what Paul does here with the believers in Thessalonica, is not called to arms. Because that's, that's what Paul is doing. Look at the, the metaphors that he's using. The breastplate of faith. This is armor. The helmet of hope of salvation. This is armor. He's calling these believers in Thessalonica to arms. And soldiers are on high alert as to not be surprised by the enemy. The faith and the love and the hope that Paul mentions are paired with elements of armor. The breastplate of faith and love, the helmet of the hope of salvation. Men, men in this room, what, the, what we do in modern Christianity is we take faith, hope, and love, we put them in a fun script font, they're plastered all over Pinterest, and we think about them as feminine virtues. We think about them as things that are for the women and the children. Faith, hope, and love. We sing little ditties about them in Sunday school class, and we as men never think about those things. We want to talk about boldness and courage and manly stuff, if anything. Paul doesn't do that here. He goes straight after these things and says that they are like, they're the implements of our warfare. We've been fed this lie for quite a while now. But these aren't things that just go up on the wall in Martha Stewart's she shed. These are things that we as people should be Putting into practice, we as men should be leading in our homes in these ways with these things at the forefront of our mind. Because the way that we are going to defend against the schemes of Satan and the world are by putting on faith, love, and hope. These are the implements of our warfare. And we must know that it is a tactic of the enemy. It is, men, it is a tactic of the enemy to feminize these things and to say they are for the women and children. But these are things for all believers as they have been enlisted. Don't shrink from the responsibility to arm yourself with faith, hope, and love. How is it that you arm yourself with faith, hope, and love? It's by understanding the Word of God and applying it in your daily life. Looking forward to what God has promised, believing what God has said, and then loving your brothers and sisters in Christ around you. The children of light are aware of what's coming and arm themselves with readiness. That leads us to a conclusion. I want to give you three brief points here to take away from this passage. Three brief things to think about as you go from here this morning. The first is that the light compels encouragement. Look at verse 11. Therefore, Paul says, this is a command now, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Remember verse 18 in chapter 4. Therefore encourage one another with these words. This letter largely is about encouragement. Remember back to the beginning when we talked about 1 Thessalonians and, and just an overview of the, the letter. Much of what's contained here is meant to give us uh, directives about how to live in everyday faithfulness. How do we live according to God's word in everyday faithfulness? Here's a way. Encourage one another in these things. Encourage one another and build one another up with these words, just as you are doing. When we have the whole story, when we use it to encourage our brothers and sisters, when we know what God is up to in history, it becomes the foundation for our encouragement aimed at one another. 
what God is doing in human history, what he's doing in our lives and bringing us into his plan of redemption for human history is the foundation for encouragement that we aim at one another. Now, when we think about encouragement, sometimes we reduce that idea. These, these ideas get reduced in our culture. We use them and we fire them around. Words have little meaning for us oftentimes. But when we think about encouragement, it's not just saying nice things about someone else. Encouragement isn't just telling someone that you like their new haircut. You might like it. That's good. You might not. You shouldn't say anything then. But it, in fact, encouragement to them is what God has done and is looking forward. It's reminding them how God has been operating in human history and using what God is doing in them and around them and what God promises to do, pointing them back to these truths. Or it's offering comfort in the midst of grief that those who are in Christ who have departed this life will be raised to meet Christ. It's the act of shining the light on God's word in any given situation. When someone comes to you and says, man, I'm really struggling with these ideas, or I think this is true, or wants to gossip with you and slander someone openly, you sh- your response as a believer, as a brother or sister in Christ should be, let's go to God's word together and see what he says about what we're doing, about what we're thinking, about what we're saying. By doing so, we offer encouragement. We shine a light of God's word on any given situation. We arm ourselves. Friends, some of you may be walking around this morning unarmed. You are hopeless. You are acting as though there is no hope in this world. You're faithless. You think to yourself, what God has said has no bearing on my life. You're living without love for brothers and sisters, only considering your own interests in everything that you do. You are walking around unarmed if that is the case. Many things in this world seek to disarm you. And the only thing that you can be armed with, or the only way in which you can be armed with the faith and love and hope that's spoken of this in this passage, is to go to God's word. Arming yourself with anything else is like picking up a pool noodle when the fight is with a samurai sword. It's completely ineffective. The Word of God is the blade that does not dull, and it will not fail you in the heat of battle. Brothers and sisters, the church needs you. We need you as a congregation. We need one another to wield the word of encouragement with one another. The second concluding point I want you to take away is something in the same vein, but a little more practical. Consider, even now, how you can practically encourage one another. At the beginning of our time in 1 Thessalonians, we talked about practical gratitude. In many ways, this is the same idea. A note of encouragement that contains a promise from God's word to someone in your community group or your Bible study. That could be a way in which you practically encourage someone. When you sit down before you read the Bible in the morning or in the evening or whenever you sit down to read the Bible, pray, God, would you bring someone to mind? And when the Holy Spirit does bring that person to mind, encourage them with something that you read. Send a text message, make a phone call, write a note. Say, I read this this morning, the Lord brought you to mind. In many ways, Buffalo City Church, I think we have a culture of encouragement, but just as Paul says that they, that the Thessalonians are doing these things well, the encouragement must be to keep going, to not finish, not be done, not think our work here is done and then stop. If you haven't experienced this encouragement, pray that God would open your eyes to it and that you would be able to be an encouragement to others. Sometimes what we do is when we come to church, we're like, I really need to be encouraged. But then we don't engage with anyone and don't think we can be an encouragement to others. But this is not the way that we should approach things. We should approach them from the different angle. We should go to church saying, how can I be an encouragement to others? How can I, when we gather together for congregational worship or community group or a Bible study or just getting together for dinner, how can I be an encouragement to those around me? Not waiting 
for the encouragement to come to us, but being the encouragement that God has called us to be. So don't wait. You can encourage someone before you leave here today. You might have walked in this morning thinking, I need to be encouraged. That might have not have come. Turn, flip, flip the switch. Time to go the other direction. Say, how can I, before I leave this morning, be an encouragement to someone else? There's a lot of wonderful conversation that transpires in this room. Don't sprint for the door. Stick around. See how God encourages you and uses your brothers and sisters in Christ to build you up. Even if you don't know anyone, don't run off. Because just observe, even if you just sit in a pew, just observing one another and their encouragement of one another may be a way that the Holy Spirit uses to encourage you. Pray that God would use you to practically encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ. The final thing that I say this morning is from eternity past, God has planned out human history and one day will bring it to conclusion. Friends, this is the hope that we have and the culmination of the plan that God put into place. From eternity past, God planned out human history and will one day bring it to conclusion. Before he spoke creation into existence, he had you in mind. He had each one in this room in mind and God planned exactly what would transpire in human history. He has directed all things in your life, all things throughout history according to his plan. And to know this and to understand the details of this that are revealed in Scripture is what it means to be a child of light. And there's only one way to know. And standing at the center of God's plan is the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ fulfills God's plan of redemption and will return to finalize it. And so may we together as a congregation look to Jesus, living in light of his word and reflecting him to the world around us. Let's pray. God, we praise you this morning for your word. God, would you continue to help us as your people to live and to see, would you reveal to us by the power of your Holy Spirit what you are doing throughout all of history. How you are a God who does not do things on a whim, a God who does not change, a God who does not think differently about us yesterday and now today but a God who has, in fact, firmly fixed a plan from eternity past and will bring it to completion on the day of the Lord. God, so would we look to Jesus? Would we seek to live in light of all that he's done and all that he's fulfilled? Would we seek ways, even in these moments following congregational worship this morning, to be a practical encouragement to one another? Would your Holy Spirit impress these things upon us as we go from this place? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.